This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Clint Jasper. It's lovely to have your company as we join our reporters, meeting the people and visiting the places that make up a big country. This week, we're heading to an island off the coast of Queensland, where we'll meet some young primary school students who have a pretty idyllic classroom. Their typical school day includes playing on the beach and swimming in the ocean. We'll head into a blacksmith's workshop and meet a master of the trade who's sharing his skills with others. And we'll meet the former dive instructor who's embarked on a new career as a distiller. She's making rum from sugarcane grown near her home in northern New South Wales. And it's a passion inspired by her years travelling and working on tropical islands. Always sort of imagined I might even end up in a rum bar somewhere one day. Perhaps with a little bucket with snorkelling gear for guests and they could snorkel, come back and have a pina colada and it sounded lovely. But instead of the rum bar, I was really enjoying living in the Tweed and in Cabrita Beach. And I knew that there was sugar cane all around where we lived and there was the Condong Sugar Mill in the Bar. So I thought that maybe I could make rum. And so I did. That does indeed sound lovely. We'll meet the woman who's put her plans for a rum bar on a tropical island on hold while she gets to work making the rum, using sugarcane from the Tweed region of northern New South Wales. That story's coming up. First today, we're heading to a lighthouse on the coast of Western Australia. The Pointmore Lighthouse at Geraldton stands 34 metres tall and is Australia's tallest steel lighthouse. Being a giant steel can, Pointmore has certain acoustic properties and musicians and singers have been experimenting to see what happens when they play there. They've congregated inside to record music and Chris Lewis went down to capture some of the lighthouse tunes. And basically we're just experimenting with the different sounds that are created by the amazing acoustics of the lighthouse. It's a unique sound chamber, a giant steel can that makes a significant and unique sound. As our sound travels outwards from the source, it uh, bounces, usually bounces off walls and uh, being like a, a cylindrical shape, yeah, it just sort of keeps going. I think we measured the sound and it was like eight seconds for a, for a, a drum hit. in a few cathedrals around the world and they sound beautiful but they're made of stone usually or some you know natural product whereas steel it's like yeah it's just really intense the lighthouse is a, it's a prefabricated lighthouse built uh, uh, in England and uh, shipped out here and uh, put together with big nuts and bolts 
a bit like a big Meccano set, uh, and it commenced operations in 1878. So it's, uh, it's quite old and it's um, unique in the sense that it's, uh, it was uh, one of the tallest structures in Australia, a lighthouse. It's the tallest metal lighthouse and uh, it's operated continuously since 1878. basically make noise and then once you've got a group of people like everyone's kind of bouncing off each other a little bit like we're bouncing off the walls yeah and you're just responding yeah and it's it's better to play like slower slower things because of the time it takes to reverberate kind of i kind of think of it as like like building like layers so we have different sort of frequencies covered and then yeah we're sort of just watching each other and listening to each other as well yeah, you might hear like might hear that Mark's getting some like kind of deep rhythm going, and so you kind of build your intensity on your instrument, and or you might hear some sort of lighter noises or little things, and you should respond to that. And so rather than having like sheet music or scripted things, it's like it's an yeah, it's a much more a creative, instinctual process. It is a navigational aid of some significance. So that's why it's maintained by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and uh, all mariners who are familiar with the Midwest Coast would be aware of it because it appears on every chart and for the local people living in the vicinity of this area in the Midwest, quite familiar with the um, lighthouse and it's uh, flashing. in grade one. Sometimes we do, um, not in school, but we do it for school. We make a, um, a treasure hunt outside in the garden and we make pretty decorations for outside. That's Ruby Harris and her school lunchtime is a little out of the ordinary because most days it involves playing on the beach or swimming in the ocean. But growing up on an island is the only life Ruby and her sisters Macy and Libby have ever known. Because seven years ago, their parents Kelly and Amy Harris swapped corporate careers in Brisbane for life off-grid on Wapa Great Keppel Island. We found out um, we were pregnant with our first and the, day, the very following day Kelly started working out here. So Kelly was just going to work here and we kept our place on the mainland and then um, I worked in Rockhampton for a while and just would travel on the weekends and then once we fell pregnant with the second one soon after there was no doubt at all that we would we would come over here full-time. Hi I'm Michelle Gately and I'm visiting the Harris family here on their island home. The family are among fewer than 20 people who live permanently on the island off central Queensland's Capricorn coast although they are always joined by dozens of temporary staff. When their eldest daughter, Ruby, started prep last year, it also meant starting distance education, an experience that hasn't been without its challenges. I had very low expectations of what schooling at home would be like, and I thought it would only be a couple of hours a day, but it proved extremely challenging 
trying to juggle full-time work, three kids under five, and just in general living on an island. Now in year one, Ruby has been joined in the at-home classroom by her younger sister Macy, who this year started prep. So what does a school day look like for the Harris girls? They've got their online classes, so they do probably about an hour to two hours online with a teacher from the distance ed. Um, in between there, they've got lessons that they do. There's a pretty strict curriculum that we have to follow with the school to make sure that they are on track. And then usually by lunchtime, most days, we can get to the beach and do our outdoor activities, do some of the learning at the beach and just have fun, really. That flexibility to learn outdoors is something the Harris family love about distance learning. And even a walk down to the beach can be an opportunity to learn something new. Uh, we do a lot of our counting, uh, whether we're collecting stuff, collecting trees, collecting sticks, shells, learning to write in the sand. A lot of, a lot of their well, HP is down at the beach and, and in the water. Yeah, just as much as we can do. They're much happier outside. But Miss Harris admits she was surprised by how much support that they as parents and as students have received from the distance education teachers. Both girls only have three students in their class, so that they both have a teacher, which is amazing support. So we don't have to share a teacher with 20, 25 other kids. And, and they're there whenever you need them, um, online, on the phone. They're always checking in. But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing, um, amazing program to go through. On the other side of the screen are people like Ruby's teacher, Amelia Ahern, who teaches through the Capricornia School of Distance Education. It is really different to being in a classroom because all of our resources and all of our lessons have to be tailored to being taught in an online setting as opposed to in a classroom. We've got specific programs and we've got different uh, strategies and we've got a lot of things in place to make sure that what we deliver online is you know, as close as best we can get it to match what students would get in a classroom. Obviously in an online setting um, we have to be really conscious that um, the students are not in front of us and so um, when we're delivering our lessons we've got to check that the students are engaged and participating in different ways. Um, so I guess it's things like, you know, we've got chat, chat that we can monitor, we've got online, you know, places where they can work and we can see what they've achieved or see what they've done. Um, and yeah, I guess just resourcing is really different. We've got to be so organised. We've got to have everything completely planned out and we've got to communicate with our parents and home tutors what the students need on what days. I think people think distance means distance all of the time. Um, whereas we have our mini schools, we've got one week per term where the students come in. So they'll be in the classroom with us for that week. Um, we also do things like clusters where we travel out to um, locations where the students are and you know, we put things on there too. So there is some student facing opportunities as well. The Harris family might be living in a tropical paradise, but island schooling isn't without its challenges. The island is off grid, relying on generators for power. And patchy internet connection can be the most frustrating when the girls are trying to take part in those online classes. Yeah, so we've only recently just got Wi-Fi in our house. So for, for 12 months, we um, are on the back end of our neighbour's Wi-Fi, which is not very consistent. So we did spend 12 months of schooling with internet dropping in and out. On a cloudy day, the internet drops in and out. So it's, um, it is challenging, but we, we make do. We, we get there. 
and after school activities require a little bit more planning and some patience than most families are used to. So we've got to stay the night because we can't get back. So we've got to pack a bag, catch a ferry, get in the car, drive to the activity, do the activity, and then um, turn around and come back early the next morning back for school. So it is qu it's quite exhausting. It's about an hour and a half travel just to do one hour activity of gymnastics. But the Harris family wouldn't have it any other way. Rachel McGee and Michelle Gately brought us that story about the Harris family on Greater Keppel Island. It sounds like a pretty nice setup for learning and growing up. Before that, Chris Lewis visited Point Moore Lighthouse in Geraldton, Western Australia, that was being used as a chamber to play music. You can see more on both of those stories if you head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN. Just look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, we'll meet a blacksmith who's pivoting his business after a surge in interest from people wanting to learn the craft. And the woman who went from discovering local rum on tropical islands to buying a pot to distill her own using locally grown sugarcane. At the end of 2020 is when I launched it and I had the idea in, earlier in 2019. Um, just looking for a bit of a change of career and taking a bit more control over my destiny and a destiny that wasn't going to have me desk bound and office bound. That's what I was looking for. Kerry Algar has had a varied career from diving instructor to journalist. Her latest chapter is as a distiller, running Australia's only solo female operated rum distillery, Cabarita Spirits, in the New South Wales Tweed Valley. So I had the idea to make rum and that probably came from you know the prior decade when I used to work as a dive instructor and I travelled a lot on these tropical islands and always sort of imagined I might even end up in a rum bar somewhere one day, um, perhaps with a little bucket with snorkelling gear for guests and they could snorkel, come back and have a pina colada and it sounded lovely. However, I worked as a, actually came as a journalist in, in public relations for a while and by 2019 I was, yeah, I needed a change so... Um, that's probably why the idea of rum came to my mind but instead of the rum bar I was really enjoying living in the Tweed and in Cabrita Beach and I knew that there was sugar cane all around where we lived and there was the Condong sugar mill in the Woolen Bar so I thought that maybe I could make rum and so I did. Hello I'm Kim Honan I'm chatting to Kerry who is telling me how she is learning as she goes on her journey as a distiller and she is enjoying making the types of spirits that she likes to drink. Rum's a really fun drink and actually interestingly craft rum is so different from industrial rums it's, it's actually more different than I ever realised and I'm still learning. Um, what I'm producing at the moment on the market are both classified as cane spirits because they've been in a barrel for less than two years, they're not legally rum and I have barrel age spirits ageing to be able to release a rum, if not later this year than um, at the start of next year. But I'm, I'm really, well, actually I'm really enjoying the art of cocktail making and, well, cocktail drinking, I suppose, as well. Um, it's, uh, it's more involved and complicated than I ever realised was possible. And I see it as something like, almost like a foodie revolution as well, where there's so much scope to try really unique and different flavours and combinations. And so what sort of um, product are you getting from the, the, the cane meal, molasses and sugar cane? 
I use predominantly molasses from the Condonc sugar mill and also raw sugar for my fermentations. And I use a commercial strain yeast and it's a fairly traditional method then of fermentation and then a double distillation through a copper pot still that I had manufactured in Western Australia. So it's, it's a small scale operation and I mostly service local bars and restaurants between Byron Bay and Brisbane, a few and other interstate ones as well. And the distillery sector in the Northern Rivers is certainly growing. There's a, a couple of rum producers now. What do you fit into the, the whole scheme of things? Are you, are you the only female distiller? I'm the only solo operating female distiller, yes. The, you know, there's a couple of um, husband and wife operations out there, um, but I don't know of any other female, only female-led and operated distillery in Australia, or definitely not for rum. So that presents obviously an opportunity because there's in the business there's not so much I guess compromise with decisions that are being made, um, but it is really challenging. I mean I've come from a background of communications and dive instruction, and dist- distillation is a science um, as well as an art. So I've had to learn a lot about um, the chemistry involved, the physics as well, and the engineering of how things are put together and pumps and fixtures and fittings and connections and and it's I'm still learning you know I feel like I, I've done you know a fair amount of sorry a fair amount of education and training on this journey but there's still a lot to go it's an, it's an ongoing process and I think with that as well comes a continuing improvement with my products as well and just in those first two years I've managed to release two products and I guess it's a real testament to those products. They've both been winning awards, which for me is actually really reassuring as well. And have you been tapping into the local or Australian knowledge of the other rum distillers out there? Yeah, it's an excellent industry to be in. It's a really small industry and everyone's incredibly supportive of each other. And a lot of people are in the same boat. They've changed careers recently. They've started something new. They're not all chemical engineers, you know. And so um, I do lean on the industry around me, the local distillers as well at Winding Road and at Husk, Lord Byron. Um, they're all incredibly helpful. So I, will, I do lean on those guys. Um, yeah. Standing in front of a forge in his workshop in far north Queensland, blacksmith Alex Byrne is holding a piece of red hot metal. Uh, about 1200 degrees, I think they are, yeah. You only have about sort of five or six seconds, really, so you've got to have a bit of a plan what you do, what you want to do before you uh, pull it out of the fire. Any nasty accidents or burns? Uh, basically, every day I burn myself, but I'm sort of, I don't even feel them anymore. G'day. I'm Phil Brandell. I'm watching Alex Byrne at work at the Homestead Forge in Melanda on the Atherton Tablelands. He followed his father and grandfather into the blacksmith trade and started this business 10 years ago, making hand-forged tools, housing decorations and cooking utensils. Now, thanks to a surge in interest from people wanting to learn blacksmithing, Alex has started running workshops to share his knowledge of the craft. To start off, I was really into metalworking, but I didn't have a welder or any tools. So I ended up doing a lot of my work how they would have done it like 200 years ago without any power tools or anything. Then I built a a little forge and started doing a bit of forging, making knives, and yeah, just kept growing from there. What is it about making something from scratch? I'm not sure. I just sort of love making things and just gives me a chance to let let my creativity go a bit 
and then I can sell it. So that pays the bills as well, which helps. So you make tools here and you make, you were saying fry pans and cooking implements and stuff like that. But why is something intrinsically better about that's been made from hand than say just going buying it at the supermarkets made in China? Uh, well, most of my stuff, I actually compete with hardware store prices. Anything lasts a lot longer that I make usually. I'm a bit paranoid about selling something and it breaking, so I tend to over-engineer my work a little bit. Coming up this, the next two weekends, you've got some classes going. Tell us about those classes. Yeah, well, basically, since I did my first shows and markets, um, I had people sort of begging to come and learn how to uh, make something, and I've sort of been putting it off for a while, and my lovely wife has uh, been pushing me to, <laughs> to invite people around and yeah just blown away by the amount of people that that have seen the flyers and want to come along what sort of people are signing up to look to i guess it's an introductory weekend the blacksmithing yeah well i'd say 60 percent would be women which was really surprising and then teenagers and only one or two blokes so far which is a bit strange but um i thought they'd be be in but yeah everyone's just really keen to come along and have a go why do you think uh, so many women are applying? Just more artistic, maybe more artistic side. Um, I don't know. The maybe the blokes don't want to be sort of shown up and told what to do. Maybe. <laughs> so you got women coming, and also teenagers. What, what do you think the attraction is for teenagers? Uh, mainly, all of them have been watching on YouTube, and yeah, they all want to come and have a go. What's people's reaction when you tell them you're a blacksmith? Uh, they usually ask if I shoe horses, which I don't. I've never even ridden a horse. And, uh, yeah, either horses or making fences, which I don't do either. What's the most unusual thing you've made, do you think? Uh, I made a set of six handles for a bloke that was making his own coffin. That was a bit of a weird one. <laughs> you've got lots of old tools here and anvils, and like those tools look quite old. Where do you pick up the equipment to become a blacksmith? Uh, those anvils, one's my great uncle's, one's I pinched off dad, but he w keeps asking for it back, but um, other ones, yeah, I'll just pick up as I go around, you know, garage sales, all that sort of stuff. So if your uncle had an anvil and your uh, dad had an anvil, I'm, I'm assuming that metalwork uh, runs in your family? Yeah, we're all miners. I think I'm about a sixth or seventh generation miner and um, they all had blacksmith shops and yeah we all did our own you know sharpening jackhammer picks and, and crowbars and all that sort of stuff so you're making bespoke stuff um is it more arty the the, the stuff that you're making or do you get much of a call for i don't know a, a factory that might go hey we need a part for our machine no i'd definitely say more art side i call my stuff sort of functional art so you can just buy a regular old paper towel holder but i put like a big leaf or or something on the end of it just to make make a bit of feature out of it and what are you hoping that the teens and the uh, the the girls and the women and everyone who's participating in your introductory weekends um will learn or take away from it uh well we all we'll make two or three little items they get to take home so that'll be cool and you know might spark something in them they can keep keep coming back and give them a new skill 13-year-old Melanda local Bryn Wilson has been popping into the Homestead Forge after school for the past 12 months 
to pick up some blacksmithing tips. You've been coming in here after school on all weekends to learn blacksmithing. Why is that? Well, it's the learning experience, I think, and to hang out with Alex too, which is pretty cool. What sort of things have you been learning? Metalwork mainly and blacksmiths, so you get to use a forge and you can use the hammers and you get to make shapes and stuff and cool art, so yeah. And what sort of uh, things have you made since you've been coming in here after school? Uh, marshmallow sticks, I made a few pretty leaves, all sorts of that. What's your uh, favourite, I guess, piece of equipment or thing to do in the, in the blacksmithing forge? Uh, the end product is probably the best yeah. when you get to wax it all down. It's pretty good. So. And what do you want to do when you leave school? Well, I could be a fit and turner. Yeah. Mace, maybe. I'm not entirely sure. But something with metal in your hands? Yeah, definitely. That's 13-year-old Bryn Wilson, a future blacksmith. He was chatting with reporter Phil Brandell about his love of learning all about blacksmithing under the guidance of Alex Byrne. Before that, Kim Honan introduced us to Kerry Elgar, who's embarking on a career change to become a rum distiller. You can find more on both of those stories and all of the stories on today's show by heading online to the RN homepage and clicking on the Programs tab to find a big country. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll talk to you again next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.